to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome to you all, and uh, I'm Alex Jones. I'm the director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and it's my great pleasure to welcome back uh, Fritz Mayer, who is a former Shorenstein Fellow, a former MPP, a former Kennedy School PhD, and uh, a member of the family in uh, every sense of the word. He, as a Shorenstein Fellow, wrote a terrific piece of analysis of how the narrative involving climate change uh, in terms of the storytelling, the story of climate change, changed the political uh, equation and changed public opinion. It was really one of the most uh, erudite and, and deeply uh, analytical pieces that we have published with great pleasure. And I think it may have propelled you yep. into this yep. a little bit. Uh, this is his book, Narrative Politics, Stories and Collective Action. And the thesis is that that story does have a profound effect. Uh, Fritz, we're very delighted to have you here and look forward to uh, hearing your, uh, um, your disquisition, but I also want to say, especially on behalf of the Shorenstein Center, we're, we're, it's a great pleasure to welcome well, you back. Well, thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. Thanks, uh, Alex, and uh, thanks to the Shorenstein Center for having me back. It is kind of a homecoming. I, I was also, I was just saying, uh, I guess, to, to, to Nancy that I, uh, I actually lived in Kirkland House as an undergrad and watched them blow up the train yards to create the place. So I have deep, uh, deep roots. And then That's when I was this place. At this place, yeah, yeah, the, the, what's now, I guess, the Litauer Center, not this building, but the, the one across. So I have a long connection with the, with the Kennedy School, and, uh, um, and so it's really a pleasure to be here um, for, for many reasons. Um, Although I do um, uh, is, is talk a little bit uh, about two things. One, one is talk about the, the book, uh, that is the, 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 this thesis about the importance of stories in uh, politics, um, and uh, say a few things about that. And, uh, and then, although the book is not explicitly about the media, talk about a bit about the implications for, uh, for the media. Um, uh, the the uh, as Alex said that the the, uh, the book is a kind of strong argument for the centrality of stories in politics uh, and narrative in, in politics or more, indeed stories in social life um, more generally um, and it's um, uh, it's something I mean if, if you think about uh, it's something I guess I've been thinking about for a long time so. Um, I was, when I was an undergrad at Harvard now, all those many years ago, um, I was a history and literature major, um, and uh, I suppose the most formative course I took was a course the, uh, taught by Northrop Frye, who was a Canadian literary critic on the, on the Bible as literature, and I was very taken by that and by the, the ideas of, of, of the time, uh, Clifford Geertz and Levi Strauss, and I, I was very interested in the power of story and especially public narratives of, um, in, in social settings. So I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on a race riot that took place in Atlanta in 1906. I'm from Atlanta, I grew up there, uh, and I'd never heard of it, um, which is fascinating because the riot in Atlanta was uh, uh, killed more than 100 people. It was, as was the case of riots of that era, uh, white on black riot, the whites attacking the black population. And it was triggered by narrative, literally triggered by narrative, by rape narratives, which were central to the imagination of the Jim Crow South um, in, as part of the way of justifying repression, uh, characterizing blacks in certain ways. And literally on the day of the riot, it was two more rapes was the headline in the Atlanta paper and the white population, a significant fraction of the of able-bodied white male population attacked and burned and destroyed and killed for two days, a uh, uh, section of Atlanta. So that was fascinating for a couple of reasons. One is there's story in action. I mean, you really see literally a story triggering, um, almost certainly fiction, uh, 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 but a story triggering thing. And the other part of it that was fascinating to me was that I'd never heard of it. 
because it wasn't part of Atlanta's story, the story Atlanta wanted to tell about itself. And if uh, any of you know, I mean, Atlanta always imagined itself as somehow different. It was the city of the New South. It was always a little different during the Civil Rights Movement. It was the city too busy to hate, in the words of Ivan Allen, who was the mayor. It didn't fit the history of Atlanta, the official history. Of course, it was remembered in the black community, uh, but not in the official history. Anyway, I've been interested in this a long time. When I came to the Kennedy School, though, uh, uh, the Kennedy School almost beat this out of me. So I, you know, I, 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 I took the, you know, the MPP curriculum, and I was really good at econ and math and all that stuff. And um, uh, and then I stayed on to get a PhD. Um, and my work was I worked with a man named Howard Rafa, who was one of sort of the founding fathers of the school. And Howard and, and Tom Schelling and others were really focused on issues of game theory formal ways of thinking about social interactions. And that's what I left here as a kind of game theorist, doing quantitative stuff. I actually ran the math summer math program, the incoming math program. So, then I went to Duke, where I, where I teach now. And that's what I was when I went to Duke. I was very, I sort of left all that story stuff behind. Uh, went to Duke, uh, doing that kind of formal modeling, two-level game stuff. Uh, and then I had a fascinating opportunity. I, I was, uh, uh, I got a fellowship from the Council on Foreign Relations that allowed me to go work in the government. And as it happened, I went to work for Bill Bradley, who was a senator from New Jersey. And I became, uh, initially I went there to work on trade issues alone, but eventually handled his foreign policy. But I was there um, at just the moment that the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA, was finishing up and became the central issue of uh, 1993, the first year of the Clinton administration. Well, this is ancient history, I know, but the, um, I ended up basically running the effort to pass the NAFTA in the Senate, and more than that, behind the scenes was orchestrating a lot of the campaign for NAFTA. Why Bradley was, this was a huge issue for Bradley, this was something that he really wanted to do. So I was working with, uh, eventually with the White House, the Business Roundtable, environmental groups, et cetera. Uh, you know, I didn't single-handedly do this, but I had a seat at the table. We had meetings in my, around my conference table, or a lot of these people, uh, orchestrating the campaign for NAFTA. So I go from being an academic, sitting, you know, doing game theory and formal models, and all of a sudden I'm like, it's super in the middle of this really intense battle. And what I discovered was that the game theory was a hell of a lot less useful than my history and literature. That, 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 that what I really found was that to understand the politics of NAFTA, you had to understand not the technical stuff, like the tariff schedules and the economic, you had to understand how people made sense of that. And the way people made sense of that really was through story the stories that they, they had in their head about this thing. For, for me, the trade agreement initially was this very complex. I do work on trades. I know a lot about trade rules and all this stuff. When I would meet when I'd, with a group of union representatives to come in to meet with Bradley, uh, and they would say they were pissed off. <laughs> you know, they're, really, you know, they're really angry about this. And they'd say something like, you know, NAFTA is killing us. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, can't be NAFTA because it hasn't passed yet. You know, it's, it's something else. You know, that really pissed them off um, because for them, the word NAFTA was a symbol for, stood for a larger story, a story of trickle-down economics, lost jobs, the decline of unions. NAFTA wasn't this other thing, and so it was the story that they had in NAFTA more than the real thing that mattered. And I, I could go on. I mean, we'd spent a lot of time orchestrating a counter-narrative and, and all of that. Anyway, I got very, you know, it, it took me back to my roots. I've been working on this, this book project for an embarrassingly long time, is, is, the, is the point. Um, uh, uh, thinking about this, um, I think it was Pascal who, who originally said, you know, I apologize for the length of his letter. If he'd, he said if he'd had more time, he would have written a, a shorter letter. I had a lot of time. I wrote a short book. Um, so... Um, <laughs> It's, uh, here, let me, let me just sketch the argument quickly and then talk uh, about um, uh, 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 the implications for, for media and then we can open up whatever you want to talk about. Um, the book is sort of framed around two puzzles. The first is a, is, is, is a big issue for political scientists, but it, it's, really, it's really the big issue in the social sciences and it, it's, it's sometimes called the, the, the problem of collective action. 
And, and so what is the problem of collective action? Well, there's lots of aspects to it, but basically it's, a, it's the problem we all f we face as a community when all of us want to do something, want to accomplish something, but each of us would be better off letting the rest of you bear the, the heavy lifting. And it's sometimes called the free rider problem, and it arises all the time. And it's amazing how often this is actually the form of the problem. So if you think about voting, we might all be supporting a candidate, but we all know that our marginal vote isn't going to make the difference. I should stay home and let you vote. Of course, if we all think that way, no one votes. Or I care about some cause. My extra dollar isn't going to make any difference, whether it's giving to NPR or NRA or whoever I'm giving my money to. It's not going to make any difference, really. But if we all think that way, no one gives money. No one joins. No one marches. No one joins. Right? This is the fundamental, it's a fundamental social problem that arises whenever it requires collective action to accomplish some good. Right? And where whatever that, you know, I get that thing even if I didn't contribute in the first place. So I could go into the technical analysis of public goods and the like, but that's the basic logic. And there's this problem of free riding that, that shows up everywhere. I mean, if you've ever tried to organize a PTA meeting or, you know, it, it, it's not just, a, you know, but certainly in big social movements and, 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 you know, and the bigger, the, the more people I got to get involved, the harder this problem is. Because it really doesn't matter whether I show up to march or not to rear square. It, it really doesn't. But if everyone thinks that way, you got a problem. So this is a, like a central puzzle for political scientists. And there's all vast literature on this. And almost none of it talks about stories, which is fascinating. Because the other puzzle is if you look at where you see collective action, from the big civil rights movements to trying to get your local club to do something, to a campaign where you're trying to get people to give, to just about anything, to politics, really. There's a lot of storytelling going on. And so one of the things that was fascinating to me is, is, is this total disconnect between the study of collective action in the, in, in the academy and what practitioners do all the time. The people I'm working with who are lobbying and, and running campaigns and trying to frame public opinion on NAFTA or, you know, we're just, we're just totally into the storytelling business. And so those are sort of the puzzles. And so I set out to, to, write a, to, you know, to, to write a book about why it might be that storytelling, the capacity to tell stories, the human love of stories might actually be central to the how we solve collective action problems across a whole range of things. To understand that, let me just take a couple of minutes just to talk about stories and how they work and how they work in the mind. Uh, um, to understand the power of stories, it's useful. You know, first of all, what's a story? Seems obvious. Uh, um, um, like a lot of things, you sort of know it when you see it. I have a kind of a, a definition of story that really goes back to Aristotle. It's not just a sequence of events. It has a certain pattern, has plot. Aristotle said it has, has, you know, has to be a whole, has to have a beginning, middle, and end. It has a structure to it. There's an arc to it. Um, um, it has, uh, and I could elaborate on the arcs, uh, the, the, the way in which that, that works. Typically stories be either begin, you know, either begin well and rise and, uh, you know, fall, things getting worse and it might get bad and it's either rescued at the last minute or it's tragic and, and declines uh, in, to the end or things start badly Cinderella, and you rise, Icarus, and you fall or you keep going, Cinderella. Um, but stories have very basic arc, and of course they can be super elaborated, but um, uh, so they have plot, um, they have characters, uh, certain kinds of characters, uh, victims, villains, heroes, and the like, they're identifiable, um, we tend to identify with them. Um, stories have a point, a moral, um, they, they, you can, uh, any good story you can sort of say, what did that story mean? What, what was the point of that story? I don't want to spend too long on that, but the, the basic idea is that, that, that stories are a particular, have a, are, are of, of a form of communication that's so ubiquitous that we don't even spend much time thinking about them. But as human beings, we love them. I mean, we, we, you know, we, we are storytelling animals. Um, if you think, I mean, uh, you know, it's what we do. Um, 
uh, at parties when we get together, we tell stories. When we get family reunions, we tell stories. If you're watching television, you're watching the, the dramas, you're watching stories. Uh, the Nightly News is stories. Um, uh, it's it's so ubiquitous. We don't really even we don't really even think about it. But we 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 love stories. We um, and what are all those stories doing? What 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 what's going on there? So the argument I make I make in the book is that first of all, stories have important psychological functions. That in the, that that stories are tools of the mind that help us do several things. So one is just make sense of things. So to, to say I understand something, or, or the way in which we often understand something, is to say I can tell a story in which this makes sense, that connects the dots. And we, 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 used, we used stories um, to do that um, so much that we're not even aware that we're doing it. So if you get a basic fact pattern, just a, just a little tidbits, your mind will immediately try to make a story out of it that makes it make sense. There's wonderful experiments with little kids where they just move geometric blocks and they ask them what's going on and they actually construct a story about the squares fighting the triangles. You know, uh, to, you know it, it's, it, it's fascinating how, how strong that impulse is. Jerome Bruner, who's uh, on the faculty at, at Harvard, um, written a great deal about this, um, uh, gives the example of, of the, he tells the following story, very short one. Uh, two people are talking. One says, where's Jack? The other says, I don't know, but I saw a VW parked outside of Susan's. That's the whole story. Um, <laughs> and immediately the mind starts to construct possible narratives. You know, what could be going on there? Is something elicited? I don't know. You know, depending on what stock of stories you have in your head available to, con to, to connect those dots. But it doesn't take much before we do that. Or here's another short story. It's a very short one. Uh, a tiger, a hunter, a tiger. That's the whole story. Um, so that's a, actually a Bengali story. It's, uh, right? So already there's, there's a story. You, I gave you, like, almost no facts. But you, your mind starts to construct, you know, a tiger. Oh, you know, that's a tragic story, that one. Um, or here's another one. A uh, young black man is shot by a policeman in Ferguson. He was unarmed. He was walking down the middle of the street. What else do we know? Not much else. Fascinating how fast the world makes stories out of that event. We have bare, bare bits of information that we agree on, and yet Almost immediately, two stories emerged, two very different stories emerged to make sense of that event. My brother-in-law is a policeman in Fairfax County, and we had an interesting conversation about this. He's absolutely sure he knows what happened. You know, his story, just like the, he got those facts, and he tells a story about, uh, you know, th this guy was dangerous, he, he fought the cop, didn't you? He got in, the, the policeman had an injury, by the way. Um, you know, he was doing his job, the policeman was protecting himself, it was self-defense. Absolutely sure of that. And it was fascinating, you know, he, he actually, yeah, he took pieces of the thing, but then it were like embellishments that weren't even part of the, you know, the agreed-on fact pattern. Or, of course, the other narrative that runs through the community is, you know, walking while black. <laughs> you know, this was another act of police aggression, fit another pattern, unarmed, how could it be? His hands were up, well, we don't know, you know, he was facing, you know, the, already, again, other embellishments that fit the story. The power of the, just to make sense of that, you can, in order, so the point I want to make is, you, one, you make sense of things through, through stories that you construct. We don't know what happened. But we want to. We it's a it's a disconcerting event. We want to make sense of it. Anyway, that's that's you know we we do that um, all the time. Stories. Um, uh, it's dangerous when you write a book. I can go on forever. But you know stories have enormous emotive power. Uh, 
They, um, I'll say a word in a, in a minute about how they pull on our heartstrings, but they're central to our emotions. So there's a cognitive function, there's an uh, affective function of, of the stories, and there's a lot of liter you know, understanding now that these two things are not that. You know, we used to think of emotion and cognition as two very different things. It turns out they, they really work together. The, only, the other thing I wanted to say about the sort of function in mind, though, is the centrality of story in identity. So our sense of who we are in the world. Um, the, you know, when you, when you, when you uh, meet somebody new, I find myself, you probably do too, you know, meet somebody new and you're maybe having a drink and you're getting to know somebody. I, always, I sort of laugh at myself because I end up telling, sort of, there's a canon of stories I tell about myself. You know, my, about my, my roots, my, you know, my, my father was a Holocaust survivor, came to America, you know, blah, 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 that story. I, I you know, I, I grew up in Atlanta and went to public school and ended up at Harvard. That's a kind of heroic story. Uh, uh, you know, you, you know there's a set of stories, and, 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 and what's going on there, you know, one is that's, those are sort of, that's how I tell somebody who I am. Uh, but also, it's, a, you know, these are deeply embedded in the, in, in our consciousness in terms of our understanding of who we are. There's big literature on this, and I don't want to b b bore you with it, but the, the basic idea is, we, in some sense, we, leave, we lead storied lives. We make sense of our lives through story. Now, some of that's ex post. We, you know, we, we, this happens, that happens, and then we tell a story that makes it all make sense, of course. But sometimes it can be prospective, in other words, and that's what I want to come to that we act in ways that fit the story we want to tell about our lives. That, uh, um, so, uh, so typically people have uh, sort of a, an overarching story of their life and then there are particular vignettes that are, are signposts or moments in that life that really stand out and they're t they're, they're, they are stories. Um, I worked um, after college, I, I, um, I, I sort of made a living playing basketball in, uh, in uh, the powerful English National League in, uh, uh, and to make ends meet I also worked in the sporting goods store. Uh, it was owned by this uh, old Cockney couple um, who were really taciturn, and I, I was kind of frightened of them. <laughs> and they, you know, they they were never friendly. You know, and we never really had much conversation. And so one day I just asked them, you know, quickly. I, I said, you know, were you in London during the during the Blitz? And it was like I, I mean, it was like I switched. I mean, they were transformed just to like turning on the light. It was just wow. And, and, and they couldn't stop talking about that moment, about what happened during the Blitz, about that time in their lives, about the hero heroism of people, about the bravery, about the sense of community and all of that. And I realized that for them, this was the, you know, the, the, the great moment of their lives. The sense of who they were was deeply bound up in that, uh, in that sort of courageous British you know, uh, you know, moment in history. It was really, it was really intertwined with that historic moment and deeply meaningful to them. And it gave, you know, that, that's who they were in their minds. Anyway, identity ends up being really important. So, argument is we're, we're really storytelling animals. We, we make sense of the world. We've, we, we, we orient ourselves to the world. We, through story and and our sense of who we are is really bound up in stories that um, as as storytelling animals though we're also vulnerable susceptible persuadable by the stories told to us by others Robert Coles called this the call of stories um, the and, and how does that work and this is what ends up being super important in politics, the use of story to persuade, to bring other people along. Uh, Tom Schelling uh, once uh, wrote an essay that began, um, Lassie died last night, which if you know an economist, that's just like a really rare opening sentence for an economist. <laughs> and, uh, and what he did is, it was one of the things that really got me thinking about this. He talked about, you know, what is going on? So, you know, how do you get engrossed in a story so that you suspend disbelief that this dog actor, of whom probably there are multiple dog actors, you know, died and, and, and in fact begin to, you know, cry or be upset about this. Uh, and he called, he, what he called this phenomenon is engrossment. Other people have called it transportation. It's the phenomenon of losing yourself in a story, of being pulled in, you know, in the theater and 
two hours passed and you weren't even aware of the exit doors and you of your settings and you're there or you get into a good book and you get pulled into it sometimes called transportation you're transported into another world um, stories have this remarkable ability to, to pull you in um, my wife uh, loves NCIS the uh, television I don't know if anybody watches this, this show so I guess it's like one of the most popular shows on television and um, I and uh, every so often I'll I'll stop for a few minutes to watch this stupid show um, and doggone it, it it doesn't take more than about five minutes before I'm sucked into that thing and I'm just I'm totally there you know I'm just lost in that thing um, I do the same thing with sports I'm a, you know I, maybe I have addictive personality but the point is that stories can can so what is it just entertaining not really so under under the spell of a story when you're pulled into it you begin to accept its premises for one thing so just to take the example of NCIS I'm someone who's generally very upset about um, human rights, about torture, about uh, 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 violence. I'm watching NCIS and I'm rooting for these guys to torture this suspect to get information. And then I go, oh, you know, how'd that happen? Right? Because I'm so pulled into the story that it makes sense in the context of that story. And in microcosm, that's what—that's the kind of thing that that happens all the time with story. If you lose, if you if you accept its premises, you start you, you you can you can be persuaded without even knowing that you're being persuaded. And that's that's the that's a super uh, powerful but also potentially dangerous thing. The other thing stories do is really important is they 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 trigger emotion. So I alluded to this a moment ago. Let me say a few words about it. so so. It, it, it uh, I mean, it's so familiar that, that it probably goes without saying, but it's worth thinking about. Um, I was once on a, a cross-country flight, and I, I, the movie that was on was Shrek. The, it's a movie about a cartoon ogre and a princess. And, it's, uh, and of course, I'm not going to watch that because i got real work to do. And, um, you know, it's up there. I don't have my headphones. And I'm, I'm kind of bored, so I'll put my headphones on. And the next thing you know... I'm lost in this thing. I'm accepting the premise that there's that it is an ogre and it makes sense the whole thing, and um, that uh, uh, and and more than that, I actually care. I I'm, I'm practically in tears. You know, I'm so happy for Shrek. You know, <laughs> you know. This, I mean, you, you can pick any example. There's a Guinness beer commercial now where there's a group of of men playing uh, wheelchair basketball. And this, I don't know if any of you have seen this. I'm a sports addict, so it runs in sports shows a lot. And you see these guys, you know, and there's music playing, and they're tussling and knocking each other over. And then, the, you know, and then they all get up out of their wheelchairs and walk away, except one. And, oh, that's interesting. And then the next scene, they're in a bar drinking Guinness, uh, all of them standing around their friend in the wheelchair. And you're just, you know, you just want to buy a Guinness, you know. It's just, you know, it's just, you know, it's just fast. But it also, I mean, that moment in 30 seconds, it grabs your, I mean, it grabs your heartstrings. So, uh, you know, affecting our cognition, affecting our uh, emotions, um, but bringing it back closer to politics, um, a lot. So, a lot of our interests in the world. Are certainly economic interests. We care, you know. We, we, you know, we. In politics, politics is the expression of economic interest to some extent. But, 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 but in political science, they've been so, they've gone so far that direction. They've lost track of the fact that a lot of things we care about in the world, are, are not self-interest. Are not easily explained by you know your economic interests. Um, uh, why do people care about climate change? Uh, you still, first of all, it's illogical for most of us to care about climate change because it's going to happen after we're gone. <laughs> I mean, you know, big effects are well out in the future. You know, um, why, why would you know why would why would people care about that? Um, uh, or why do people care about you know freedom of tyranny from Obama or you know restoring America and you know or, uh, or 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 abortion or any number of other things that's just not easy to map from your economic interest to um, to the stances that you take in the world. If you look at what people 
you know, of, of how people try to persuade others to have those interests. You think about why, why it is, for example, that we might care about climate change. What's interesting is that it, 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 it really looks like what's going on, if you listen to what people say, is that there's a, there's a story here. It's a story of impending tragedy. That if, if we don't act now on this, that there'll be a, a horrible events well into the future. And if you listen, you know, uns only partially successful Al Gore, you know, or Bill McKibben or any of the activists, you know, what are they doing? They're actually, they're actually using these stories all to try to pull their audience into the, into this narrative to say, this is a, this is a tragic thing that's about to happen to get you to care about what might happen. And interesting, a lot of times the, the, the care about is, is a really identifiable character that you, so think polar bear. You know, so, you know, so instead of in the abstract, we tell, a, you know, a story like that. Or the farmers, three generations, five generations on the farm who's suffering from drought, et cetera. So there's a lot of effort being made there. Um, um, the, the, the point is that people are trying to use stories and do use stories, and we make sense uh, to, to, to even construct these kind of, of, of interests. Collective action. So the thing about a story is that it's shareable, um, and uh, stories can be held at once in many minds. And the central argument that, that I'm making here, and I'll, 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 I'll wrap up so we can, we can talk about some of this, because I know I'm covering a lot of territory here, um, is that when you see big collective action in particular, Remember, there's this free rider problem. So somehow you got to get people to, to, to move, to act, even though their contribution in itself is not going to make it much of a difference to the thing that you want to have happen. And so the trick is essentially, and you see this over and over again, is to align your self-narrative, your autobiographical narrative, the thing that codes for your identity, with the collective narrative, with the collective drama. In other words, to engross you in a story in which you're acting in history. What does that mean? So if you think, I began the book with the, with the just because it's familiar, with, with King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and the I, I Have a Dream speech, because it's a familiar thing. And here it is, this big, King's biggest moment, biggest platform he's had to date. Um, and what does he do? You know, does he does he does he you know does he do a cost benefit analysis of uh, the virtues of uh, voting rights? Uh, no. Uh, does he does he uh, make a kind of uh, you know public policy argument about why this is a good thing to do? No. He tells a story, um, and he tells a very particular story. He tells a story about the civil rights movement. And he aligns it directly with the American story and indeed with the biblical story. And if you listen to the story, it's basically America began with a promise four score years ago, words that echo the Gettysburg Address. So you're already triggering a bunch of other narratives that people have in their heads. Um, promise, I read, all men are created equal. You know, we haven't made good on that promise. We're in the, we're, it's, it's, it, we failed. We're failing. The story of America is failing. It's a, tra it's, it's a tragic story. It's not a civil rights story. It's America's story. So he's aligning the civil rights story with the American story. We're at a point of failure. You know, but let us not wallow, wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you, I still have a dream. And then he takes you, in narrative terms, up, you know, up. The, the imagined future story of America, the heroic story of America, this epic story that takes you up. You know, I still have a dream today. It's a, a dream deeply um, um, woven in the American dream. It's, it's, you know, I have a dream. And then, he, then he, he, at the same time, he talks about biblical stories. So he references Moses at the same time. So he's, 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 he's playing off these stories that his audience has in mind. It's a if you ask why that story has speech, it's that. It, 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 and I haven't gone much into depth about it, but how it is that stories grab us, some of, a lot of it has to do with their ability to resonate with the story you already have in mind. Anyway, King pulls his audience there, 
And what he's doing is he's creating a sense of history, of, of locating this moment in a great sweep of history, and it's very dramatic. And this, then this is the big, this is the big thing. He, he's offering, he's, he's basically saying, we're in history, all of us here. And the trick is to get you to think, all right, when I tell the story of my life, what am I going to say about what I did when history called? In Selma, um, 1965, after the march over the Pettus Bridge had failed, King wasn't there that day when, the, when, they, when they got beat up and John Lewis and Hosea Williams led the march over the bridge. King comes back a couple days later. His leadership's a little bit in question. The young Turks are not real happy with him. He leads a second march over the bridge. And uh, he, he, he marches over, the, they go over the bridge, and unbeknownst to the marchers, he's made a deal with a judge that he's not gonna go any further and he's gonna turn them back around. So they kneel and pray. And then he turns them around and they walk back over the bridge. Well, no one knew what was going on. And they march back to Brown Chapel, which is the place where they're organizing. Um, and people are confused, pissed, uh, frustrated. King's leadership's in, uh, sort of in question. It's a kind of perilous moment for that thing. And there's police outside, and there's, there's sort of danger in the air. Um, and King gives a speech. Let me just read a, 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 an excerpt uh, from it at that point. You know, if you know the speeches, he, he begins slowly, he builds, he builds, he builds, he builds. This is the towards, this is the end of the speech. Um, he's trying, remember, what he's trying to do is keep people from walking away. He says, deep down in our nonviolent creed is the conviction that there's something so dear, something <coughs> so precious, something so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And if a man happens to be 36 years old, that's all, as I happen to be, and some great truth stands before the life of his door, the door of his life, some great opportunity to stand up for that which is right. But he's afraid his home will get burned. He's afraid he will lose his job. He's afraid he will get shot. He may go and live until he's 80. But he's just as dead at 36 as he would be at 80. And the cessation of breathing in his life is merely the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. So what is he doing there? I mean, he goes on, you know, we're going to stand up. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. What is he doing there? It's the same thing that uh, Henry V does in, uh, uh, in, 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 uh, um, when he's addressing the troops. He's saying, um, they face the French at Agincourt, and they want to leave, and they, they you know, he, he says to them, you know, this story shall a good uh, man teach his son. He's saying, at the end of your life, what story do you want, to, want told? Imagine yourself, what he's trying to do is get you to imagine yourself in this historic moment. And, and, and what, is the, what character do you want to play in the story of your life? Do you want to be the one that failed in that moment, or do you want to be the one that, that acted? This is a grand, epic, historic thing. Does the same thing happen on smaller scales? Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, and if you watch the, what's going on with, uh, I mentioned Bill McKibben when he speaks on climate change. Um, uh, if you, if, you know, when I get, try to get my TAs to, to uh, work hard, you know, I'm saying, you know, you're part of this great tradition of, you know, you're, we do this all the time to get people to imagine, what you're trying to do is get people to imagine the, 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 themselves in story, to see themselves as character in story. Um, and to put and to make the choice that they make a kind of test of their identity of their of of their character. That's the argument in the book. What difference does it make for for media for your business? So I think it makes a hell of a lot of difference. So first of all, just just a couple of points. One is, um, if narrative matters, if narrative politics matters, um, and it's not just about the economics and about this other stuff, then stories matter a lot, and that means the media matters a lot because whatever else it is. The, the, the media are storytelling, story-selling institutions in the business of taking the complexities of the world and turning them into stories. Those stories can be rich and nuanced and thoughtful, or they can be cheap shots and uh, pandering to the prejudices and the stories that people already have in their heads. But it matters a lot what that story is and um, in terms of how people make sense of the, of, of the world. Um, 
Um, and I think with that comes, uh, um, you know, a, a, a kind of deep responsibility for the story, not just the story you tell, but the story that will be heard, the story that, that others will construct of it. So, you know, when you tell, when one writes about Ferguson, it's not just the story you write, it's the story that will be made of it that, that, that matters. And I think with that comes quite a, quite a responsibility. Um, and the other thing I think is, and I tried to, uh, Alex alluded to the paper the, that I wrote when I was here, I, I, and for people who study media, there's been insufficient attention to the story as a medium, to the story as the unit, um, insufficient attention to the possible narrative lines that are out there and analysis, you know, of media coverage using the narrative analysis as a tool. And so I think there's a lot of promise for that. and, and uh, so part of what I'm, I'm trying to do um, with, with my work um, these days. I went on longer than I, than I should, um, but uh, thanks, for, thanks for bearing with me, and um, let's, why don't we open okay, it up? Well, I, I want to ask the first, and then, right. uh, then we'll open it up. Uh, as Fritz said, he's at Duke, at, and he's at the uh, Sanford School of Public Policy at, uh, in Durham, North Carolina. And North Carolina has just been the battleground for one of the epic congressional you know, races, uh, and if there is any sort of fundamental modest action, it's getting people out to vote. And we had in this past congressional election one of the lowest ever, ever, ever. Uh, I'm sure you were in North Carolina absolutely inundated with stories and efforts to make the narrative yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, Look at, look at that through the prism of what you've been studying and saying. What, what happened in North Carolina specifically, and is there a way to get people simply, if nothing else, to the polls? Well, that's a great question. So, so um, a few things to say about that. You know, there was no lack of storytelling, uh, both sides. And, and uh, I, I slipped by and, and didn't really focus on the problem that typically arises, which is that you have competing narratives. Uh, so it's not like one person has the air, you have the, the other side has the air too. So what we had was intense competing narratives. Um, those narratives were, uh, for the most part, negative stories about the other. Uh, so the net effect of this was was for each side to say the other was, you know, the worst, you know, disaster, etc. So part of the problem is that the that the, the the these tools of storytelling have been, you know, they're familiar to the spin doctors. They use them like crazy, but it's kind of a race to the bottom. I mean, both sides are doing damage to to the other, and so that that's a depressing thing. And people, uh, it's it. it I was I was I mentioned John Lewis. I was at a talk that John Lewis gave a couple of weeks ago in Durham, and um, it was fascinating because he's just one of the few real heroes. And somebody said uh, got up and asked him a question and said, uh, you know, what do I say to people about who say there's no point in voting, it's useless? And this of course this was you know this is John Lewis's life. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know he leans for every ounce you know of his being trying to say you know it's precious, it's it's etc. But you could see why people would be discouraged with, you know, with the with the the negativity. Um, the so that's an aggregate. Then the turnout patterns in North Carolina that really mattered were the dis. The, the, so some people turned out and other people didn't turn out, <laughs> and so the it. You know, <clears throat> one way of interpreting that is that there's a uh, the central narrative of the Tillis campaign was. Um, Hagen equals Obama. Obama is disaster. He's he's weak. He's barely one of us. He's you know it's pretty negative. You know it's it's been a disaster. Obama you know Affordable Care Act, but it's basically it's a disaster and it's depressing. And and of course on the other side, Hagen was trying to pin Tillis on the on the on the. Uh, what's going on at the state level, but was was much less effective. The Tillis campaign was also so th there that that story was and and Hagen was very defensive, you know, very had a very difficult time sort of distancing herself, I think, from that story. And that that was that sort of that sort of depression on the part of Democrats, I think, had a had some impact. 
um, uh, as well. So, in aggregate, you know, the nature of these stories, uh, very negative, cancel each other out, net effect is negative, but then there are also differential things going on as well. Some stories are working better than others. You think in if she had climate. been more aggressively a Democrat who supported Obama and was focused on getting her people out instead of trying to win some voters yeah. on the other side of the equation, it would have made a difference? Probably not. And, you know, here's the dilemma. You know, if she alone does it, um, you know, so, so you know, increasingly story, politics is nationalized in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. So the the fact that, that all the, almost no Democrats are out there making that case makes it extremely difficult for any one of them to put their head up and say, by God, you know, this was a good thing to do, Obamacare. So what you get is, I mean, I think there's a collective action problem there going on as well, which is that, um, uh, in my view, uh, it would have been extremely difficult for her alone to do that uh, because Obama, the, the story that people have in their minds is that Obamacare is a failure, that things are bad, that Obama's a failure. That, that, not everyone, but, but that's, that's sort of where the weight of the public is right now. So for her alone to do that is extremely difficult. My own view is that the Obama administration and other Democrats have collectively failed to tell the story as effective, and so the context in which she was operating isn't as good as it might have been. Let me let me uh, open it up to uh, to students first, and then I'll get you. Uh, Fritz, I was just yeah. curious if um, you've read much about this new book by Naomi Klein, who is also talking about storytelling, like your paper yeah. about um, climate change. And as I understand it, what she's saying is that um, the environmental groups told a softer version of climate change, you know, with the polar bear, um, but that the real story is so much worse that they felt they couldn't really get people to do anything because it was so bad, you just give up. And so they told a story that they maybe knew wasn't quite correct, um, but that had a plausible solution, and so they focused on that. Yeah, fake story. It's a tricky issue. I mean, we, we we like stories with happy endings, and so one of the things we know is that if you tell a story where there's, it's just going to be bad, then people will tune it out, and and it'll just depress action. So, you you do need stories with potential happy endings. So. In the literature on agenda setting, and you know, the, there's 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 a lot that sort of basically makes that point that we tend to things that we think we can solve, basically. So it's a it's a tricky business how far you go. Um, the other, um, and so I'm not you know, uh, I'm not quite sure. She, I mean, she, her argument is you know we should go full bore and you know really tell you know really scare the hell out of people, and. Um, you know, one of the things is, I don't know how interested people are in climate change, but, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, in dealing with climate change, you can either take actions to mitigate or to adapt. So mitigate means take, you know, stop putting stuff in the atmosphere, reduce the thing. Adapt means what it sounds like, you know, or, you know, let's build some seawalls uh, or move off, you know, upland, et cetera. Um, um, the the harder you press on that, it's really disaster. The harder it is, the easier it is for people to say, "Oh, what the hell? Let's just adapt." And the problem with that is is that uh, every bit counts. <laughs> so it gets harder and harder to adapt if you don't mitigate. So, but anyway, um, the counter to the you know to her is is that uh, any. Anything that seems the least bit like an exaggeration or an overstatement gets seized upon by those who are actively telling stories on the other side as part of a you know overhyping, and you know the it's not clear what what Al Gore's net effect was on this issue. So on the one hand, he put the issue you know helped to put the issue on the agenda, 2006 with an inconvenient truth, a lot of attention. People saw that movie. It, you know, it had some positive thing. On the other hand. For a variety of reasons, he became an, a convenient foil for the opposition on the other side, and um, he sort of fit their image of a, you know, conspiratorial liberal uh, internationalist. Uh, um, and so that counter narrative, that hoax narrative, accommodated him very well. 
So it's a tricky issue, I think, in terms of how hard. A lot of what people are trying to do now, you say, well, let's, let's just talk about things we can do without, without, like, scaring the heck out of people. Let's just think about, you know, so that's sort of the backstory. But, you know, how can we be green? How can we do something that makes a difference locally? How can we do something positive? So you see this in uh, Mayor Bloomberg and the cities trying to do little steps that say, you know, without sort of, you know, without really confronting the fact that that's probably only a drop in the bucket because that would be very discouraging. Yes. So uh, I took a class with Professor Marshall Gans. Yeah. So I, I see a lot of similarities. So I'm wondering that is there, uh, is it based on the same framework or? So, yeah, Marshall's a good friend, and uh, uh, we've talked a lot about this. So uh, there's a lot of similarity, uh, certainly, in how Marshall thinks and, and, and I do. Um, um, uh, and, and, and I learned a number of things from Marshall, to, to be sure, so as I acknowledge in the, in the book. I think the, the, um, I, I, I probably put much more of a, so two things. One, I sort of go deeper into the nature of the collective action problem and, 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 and somewhat more explicitly talk about, uh, I don't know how much you want to know, but, but, but about free riding, but also what's a problem, call, a problem called assurance, which is that even if, even if, even if I, uh, we all want to be at the march, if, if we would get satisfaction from participating in collective action, I have to believe you'll show up too. So I have to believe that you'll stay good. So then how do we credibly commit to each other that we will stay the course, that we will, you know, we will stand next to each other? If I charge, will you be with me? How do I know that, mm -hmm. right? So, even, so I, let's assume I would prefer to charge with everybody. I, I no longer want a free ride, but actually, but it really matters a lot whether I'm alone or whether I'm with a bunch of people. So now what we need is something called assurance. And how do we assure each other well, this is a form of commitment. So the idea there is that I read you as a person motivated by narrative. That and and if I can see that you are committed, that your identity is bound up in this moment, just like mine. You couldn't. I know you couldn't live with yourself if you hung back, because you couldn't live with that in your self story. Then I'll trust you. And if I trust trust you, then I'll go. So I talk about that and um, and, and and but yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, 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 Marshall and I uh, uh, share a lot of uh, a lot of interests, and I you know I spend more time talking about the psychology of what's of what's actually happening in the mind when we when we frame through narrative, when we make sense of things through narrative, the way in which we connect the dots in particular ways, the way in which when we connect the dots, what what we have available are stocks of stories that are in the culture. And that, and it's a kind of a fitting. So we, we, we assemble the according to the prior narratives that we already have. Um, so that's why stereotypes were. That's why things go viral. That they fit so beautifully. And sometimes things go viral that they, they tell themselves. I mean, urban legends. They don't, no one even authored it. It just it just happened because it fits so perfectly the story we already have in mind. Anyway, but yeah, there are a lot of parallels there. Yeah, Pat. Yeah. Um, <coughs> part, yes, parents, etc. But in some sense, we live in communities. Uh, of, that doesn't mean geographically necessarily, political communities, religious communities, etc. What's a community? Among other things, a community is a, is a collective of people who share stories, who share, often share a common story. And so what you see in a community is um, uh, a lot of storytelling. Um, transmission of stories. So if you're in, Amer in the African-American community, you have lots of stories. 
about police violence, about what happens when you try to get a cab on the corner, about what, how people react to you. You also have personal experience with some of these things. And, but you also have a stock of stories, and those stories resonate. You, sit, you, know, you get together and you, you say, you know, what happened, uh, this happened again. Okay. Or if you're a poli in the police, those guys tell stories in the, in the, in the police house. They're, 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 there's a community. So what does that mean? So, so, you know, what is a transmission? There's lots of different forms, but, the, but the, 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 you know, A, we, we live in communities that are in part defined by the common stories that they hold. Now you have a problem. It's exactly the problem you've, you identified is that the story that I'm going to construct or the story I'll believe is the story that resonates or corresponds with the story I already hold. And so the example I gave of Ferguson, people leap immediately into those narratives. <clears throat> At the extreme, it's hopeless. You just say, you know, what determines, you know, all only thing that matters is the prior story, you know. Uh, but that can't be right um, uh, for a bunch of reasons. It can't be the only thing that's right because, first of all, we live in multiple communities, all of us. Even if we're in, in on one day we're we're policemen and we're sitting around the, but we're also we have a religious community, we have other communities that we're part of, and so that means we have available to us a wider array of stories that could resonate. And it seems to me that uh, the extremely difficult to do this. Of course, if it were easy, then it would <laughs> we wouldn't have to talk about it. Um, but what you see in um, when you do see movement, what you see is people figuring out how to find a narrative that resonates beyond the immediate community to a larger community. And so in some sense, that was the genius of King and of the civil rights movement, that it was a story, it was a way of telling the story that resonated with the available stories in communities beyond the immediate one. Or uh, um, I think the, the fascinating and remarkable change in attitudes about gay marriage and gay rights in this country is really interesting. Um, in part, a lot of things going on there, but in part seizing on gay marriage, a very conservative idea, marriage, uh, and telling that story in a particular way was more effective than, say, some other things. Or if you take the, the efforts to, to change opinions about the death penalty, um, uh, stories about innocence, uh, as opposed to the failures of deterrence or, or the, hor you know, the horrors of, of you know, we, we had those that didn't really make much a difference, but the stories of innocence have really moved uh, people. And we talk about why that is, but, it, but it's finding that story that somehow reaches beyond the immediate community uh, that I think is a challenge. Yeah. Um, I was just interested in the... Uh, process of telling the story in politics about the person, the family, the kind of, you know, to some that's a kind of yeah. uh, trivialization or to some extent a kind of, you know, an invasion of privacy. I live and work in Europe where that kind it's of meshing yeah. of, yeah. you know, personal and political is not very well seen. So, I mean, have we, is this kind of overwhelmed us? Have we got the story overwhelming the message when we present a the family, the grandchildren, the yeah. story from the log cabin, you know, whatever. Yeah, from the log, yeah, we always have a log cabin somewhere in the background is uh, in the American story. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, stories overwhelm the content all in lots of different ways. Um, it is fascinating the extent to which American politics is so much more focused on the individual. Um, uh, you know, that's cultural, that's part of a uh, History. Um, um, uh, it, it's it's an it's an interesting uh, uh, double-edged sword. If you if you think about, I mean, the, the, uh, there's a big effort to you know to sort of say I'm I'm uh, a good family man. I've you know I'm I'm virtuous and all that. And, and you could argue that that's a way. It's a proxy for integrity that that you're trying to ascertain whether you can trust this person. That there's some carryover from trusting them in private life to trusting. You know, notice how how aggressively we punish those who trans, you know, who who, who break that. So the recent book about Gary Hart, you know, is you know extraordinary. I mean, you, you, the the way in which that uh, just you know destroyed a, um, a career which would presumably not happen um, in Europe. Um, 
uh, my own view is that's, that's this is not a particularly healthy thing. <laughs> that it's that uh, um, um, King, for example, <laughs> who I've spoken glowingly about as a wonderful leader, you know, might well have, in today's context, been destroyed by his infidelities. Um, so that's not. Um, a healthy thing. Yeah, I mean, my, I'm not arguing it's a good thing that stories are so powerful. It, it, you know, it's, uh, I, I mentioned my own background. I mean, it's, you know, sort of deep in my background, I'm deeply aware of the power of a, of a mythology in the context of Nazi Germany. So, you know, at that extreme, it's incredibly damaging. Lots of these stories are, I think, uh, trivial, take us off point, um, deeply uh, misleading, uh, etc. Um, my, my, I mean, are made up. Made up, and and our ability to ascertain whether something is true or not is is extremely limited. So the way we make sense of it is, does it fit with what I think could have happened? I mean, it's not. I you know, it's not an analytic process. So we can be misled, and we are. Um, part of why I try to talk about this is I, is to defend, you know, is to arm people in a sense against story because. We're, we're constantly being, people are trying to manipulate us all the time, like the con man on the street who's trying to panhandle you and tells you a story about something or another. You know, we, we know better than to listen, or we try not to, because anyway, that's probably a good, good lesson. Uh, we're out of time. Time. We're out yeah. of time. I, this has been wonderful. I've been fascinated. I didn't, it's too late for going into this, but it struck me about... Uh, what an inc incredible reversal of fortune Bill Cosby is now going through. I would, yeah. Uh, because the story has changed. Yeah. yeah it's and I don't know that there is a counter-narrative that will ever restore him in any way. No, I think no. he's maybe no, finished. No, it's it. No, it's it. Yeah. Uh, I gave a talk the other day and mentioned that as, yeah, it's... Uh, and it's catnip for the media. I mean, you know, you can't avoid, you know, I, was, I watched the NBC Nightly News the other day because I was giving a talk and I wanted to know what was on the news. And, you know, you... You know, is Bill Cosby's story the most important thing in the world? No, although certainly sexual violence is. Um, but anyway, that becomes a story, and you're quite right. He'll never recover. Narrative anyway. politics. All right. Thank, Thank you. you all very much.